Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. Usually people who study administrative law or the administrative state focus on the administrators, not the ones being administered. I've always thought that this is a worrisome form of myopia, especially in a time when the government and the private sector often move in very different directions and at very different speeds. And so I was very pleased to see the publication of a fascinating new book titled Evasive Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance. And today I'm all the more pleased that its author, Adam Thierer, can join us today. Adam, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. For those who aren't already familiar with his work, he's a senior research fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center, where he writes on innovation, entrepreneurialism, the internet, and free speech issues with a special focus on the public policy concerns surrounding emerging technologies. Before Evasive Entrepreneurs, his previous book was Permissionless Innovation, The Continuing Case for Comprehensive Technological Freedom. And we'll talk a little bit about that book, too. But first, let's start with Evasive Entrepreneurs. Adam, who are the Evasive Entrepreneurs, and what are they trying to evade? <laughs> well, the Evasive Entrepreneurs are a diverse cast of characters. It's hard to uh, characterize them uh, as any one particular group. But when you think about it, it's anybody who tries to put the idea of permissionless innovation into action in the real world. It's uh, the various types of innovators, for example, in the sharing economy who've gone out to try to make policy change part of their business model. It's people who are food entrepreneurs who are uh, attempting to just do something as simple as bake something in their own homes and uh, sell it out of their homes or give it away even. Um, it's something more sophisticated, like people who are into cryptocurrencies and blockchain-based technology or people who are experimenting with new types of medical innovations or even uh, the strange world of so-called biohacking where people are uh, utilizing citizen science uh, to try to find new cures to things. So it's a diverse cast of characters, like I said, and it's, it's tough to, uh, to pigeonhole them down, uh, pigeonhole them into any one category. You know, I was going to get to this later, but you use the term permissionless innovation right away. Why don't you describe that? Um, it was the subject of your previous book. Yeah, I'll be happy to. Um, uh, for the longest time, I've been in the field of uh, technology policy studies and regulatory law and economics now for the better part of 30, 30 years for five different nonprofit institutions. And in all that time, I've always been able to easily identify uh, those opposed to forms of technological innovation or progress as being uh, uh, under the spell of the so-called precautionary principle. Um, the idea that it's better to be safe than sorry and as a public policy default, um, innovation uh, should need to seek some sort of a blessing or permission slip before it goes forward to make sure it does not upset any norms, legal or otherwise. But what was the opposite of the precautionary principle? We didn't really have a name for that. And so I started searching for one, and I decided that this phrase, permissionless innovation, which I, I have to make sure your listeners understand, I did not come up with this phrase. And frankly, I don't know who did. It's still a great mystery to me to figure out who first uttered that term or coined it. But permissionless innovation uh, became a hot term, especially in Silicon Valley during the, the rise of the internet and the digital revolution, to describe a form of sort of um, lively entrepreneurialism and uh, trial and error experimentation with new and different ideas without first seeking someone's blessing or permission to engage in said innovation. And so I said to myself, well, permissionless innovation also is a nice way of describing 
uh, a regulatory ethos. Uh, and it's the, it's the antithesis, if you will, of the precautionary principle, because permissionless innovation, as the name implies, uh, is giving a green light to innovators and entrepreneurs to go out and let their minds run wild and tr experiment with new and better ways of doing things uh, to try to improve their lives, the lives of their loved one or society. Um, and so that in general is what uh, I mean by permissionless innovation. And specifically, I'd like to see it be more generally the policy default when in debates over technological change and innovation, uh, politics enters the picture. I want to argue, and I do argue in my books, that it should be the presumption uh, to which all policy uh, aligns. I think it's the key premise for our audience to really get that this entire book and the one before it are written against the backdrop of that sort of overarching, all-encompassing mesh of regulation at the federal, state, and local levels, right? Regulation through written statutes, regulation then under those statutes through regulations, through um, informal guidance. We'll talk later about soft law, which is another focus of yours. But it is sort of an, it, it, when you step back and realize that the whole point animating your last couple of books is the fact that entrepreneurs, innovators, they see a, a, a regulatory regime in which the default assumption is, in general, you have to ask permission before you do things. Um, yeah, and, yeah and, that's right. And that and the, this evasive entrepreneurs is really, uh, a t in many ways, a technological and cultural response to that. Is that a fair way of putting it? That's a perfect way to put it. I couldn't put it better myself. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, basically, evasive entrepreneurs are pushing back against what Tim Sandifer, the Goldwater Institute, refers to as the permission society or the, the convoluted uh, labyrinth of permits and red tape that encumber entrepreneurial activities. And so evasive entrepreneurs basically put permissionless innovation into action and live out the adage that it is easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to get permission. Um, and that's, of course, a controversial thing to a lot of people. But then more generally, when you think about it, and as I argue in my book, innovation in itself is often quite controversial. Uh, Deirdre McCloskey has written eloquently about how for the longest time innovation and the very term innovation was considered a sort of form of heresy. Um, and that's really interesting when you think about it, but it shouldn't be all that surprising because there's always going to be individuals and institutions and groups that defend a status quo, whatever it may be, and don't want to see disruptive change come along, or especially the forms of sort of Schubertarian creative destruction come along that could undermine their business models or their, their sectors, their skills, whatever else. And that's inevitably when permissioning comes into play in the form of politics. And then, of course, the administrative state. Now, the very outset of your book, there's a couple of quotes that jumped out at me that I thought really sort of captured just perfectly um, the, the ethos of your work. And if you mind, if I just quote these few lines um, from page two for the for folks who wind up reading along, you say, quote, evasive entrepreneurs are taking advantage of the growth of various technologies of freedom. That's an interesting phrase, technologies of freedom, or what might also be labeled technologies of resistance. These technologies are devices and platforms that let citizens circumvent or perhaps just ignore public policies that limit their liberty or their freedom to innovate or to enjoy the fruits of innovation. And then the second quote from a few pages after that, you say, evasive entrepreneurialism is not so much about evading law altogether as it is about trying to get interesting things done, demonstrating a social or an economic need for new innovations in the process, and then creating positive leverage for better results when politics inevitably becomes part of the story. 
Now, Adam, I've heard about this for a few years, sometimes characterized as regulatory hacking. And that might, I might be misusing the phrase. You'd, you'd know the terminology better than me. But this idea that um, when innovators, when entrepreneurs come up with, with something new, um, they're going to push up against the sort of stockpile of, 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 of legacy regulation that was written for other things in other times. And sometimes the best way to change the law is to create demand for your product and to create a political constituency for your product. The most famous case is, is Uber, right? To the extent that Uber might have pushed the, the boundaries of taxi cab regulation in some jurisdictions, and maybe this is unfair, but to the extent that they were maybe pushing or any, crossing any lines, they knew what they were doing. And they also knew that they could build a p political constituency that would ultimately succeed in getting the laws changed. Sometimes you hear the phrase, fake it till you make it. Um, reading the first few paragraphs of your book, I thought, well, I guess this is a story of break it till you make it. Break, <laughs> maybe break the law a little bit until you're in a position to make the law. What do you think? I think, that, I think that's a fair way of putting it. It really is. And when I talk about technologies of freedom or resistance, I'm, I'm really borrowing phrases or, or terms that have been used by others before me. Ethel de Sola Pool, for example, a famous political scientist, wrote eloquently about technologies of freedom and the onset of the uh, the digital age. Um, but more generally, when you talk about the ride sharing experience, it's really a, a great instructive example. I spent a lot of time in chapter two of my book explaining how these different types of regulatory hacking, as you mentioned, or regulatory entrepreneurialism um, took effect within the ride-sharing economy in the two uh, uh, late 2000s and early 2010s. And here's the question, why did that happen? Why did it have to happen? And I tell the story in my book about how for the better part of about 70 years, there was a great deal of consensus by people of all political dispositions that most taxi cab and transportation regulations were unfortunately not serving their intended purpose, that they really were not benefiting uh, public wealth, health and welfare. Um, and really we're kind of a, the paradigmatic croniest uh, fiasco, if you will. And there was plenty of pressure from lawyers and economists and political scientists and many others, including regulatory officials at the federal level, at the FTC and elsewhere, to change policy at the municipal level, to, to open the door to new forms of competition and choice. Because let's face it, traditional taxicabbing was not very price competitive. It was not high quality and there just wasn't enough uh, openness to new types of change. Well, why couldn't we get any change? And the answer was is that the administrative state as we know it in that sector just wouldn't allow it. And everybody knew this. You were either in the game or you weren't. And so what the ride-sharing competitors like Uber and Lyft did is they came along and said, you know, we know if we go into this political process and try to play, quote unquote, by the book, we're going to get killed by the book or the, the book won't allow us to play the game. And so they made policy change part of their business model through whether, whether you want to call it regulatory hacking or regulatory entrepreneurialism. They set out to challenge the law with their marketplace actions and then utilize those new technologies of freedom to basically give their consumers a voice to fight back as sort of citizen lobbyists on their behalf. And that's why the Uber and Lyft story is so powerful, because now it's unthinkable that we would have a world without these things. And when I go into law schools or philosophy programs and lecture about this, I often ask the classes like, you know, who here has been in a, uh, an Uber or a Lyft or any ride sharing vehicle lately or stayed in Airbnb? And almost everybody raises their hands today, especially if it's in a big city. And I said, well, then you're all breaking the law, darn you. How dare you do this? It's unethical, right? They didn't play by the book. 
And they say, oh, well, no, no, huh, huh. And it gets to an interesting moral question or ethical question I raise again and again and again in the book, which is why is it it's so easy to defend entrepreneurial activity ex post after the fact, but it's so difficult ex ante? Why is it that like when these things were happening, people were like, oh, I don't know. You didn't see a lot of people defending it right up front. And now everybody does. And what I'm doing in this book is saying, you know, it deserves a defense up front. Now, Uber and Lyft are probably the quintessential examples of this. And I'm just curious if for the sake of our audience, uh, could, could you maybe offer a, a, another good example of, sure. of who you have in mind? Um, I'm, yeah. I'm especially curious as we get into sort of if there's anything in the life sciences areas or anything else. With, with COVID, we're taping this um, in, in July in the middle of the COVID-19 outbreak. And there's been a lot of criticism of, you know, pharmaceutical companies and, and pharmaceutical regulation for sort of slowing the process necessary to bring cures. I don't know if you have any examples in that sphere, but I'm, oh, I'm just curious. I, yeah, I have so many, I don't know where to end. I mean, basically, I spent a good chunk of my time in Chapter 2 of my book and, and other writing talking about interesting forms of sort of decentralized bottom-up innovation in the, the health and medical space. Uh, I'll just try to briefly reel off a, a couple of interesting ones I go through in the book. Um, you think about all the interesting things that are being done today with 3D printing technologies. And I have been lucky enough to be at conferences where uh, people came together and utilized 3D printers and open source blueprints to, to fabricate on the spot new hands and arms for children with limb deficiencies. And at a conference at John Hopkins University where I saw this happening, all being done free of charge, by the way, which raises interesting questions for administrative law. You know, Why is it that some things are illegal when you charge money for them, but perfectly legal when you don't? <laughs> we, we probably can't have time to get into that day, but I spent a lot of time in my book on it. But in the, in the field of health, that's happening right now. And when I debated an FDA official at a, a John Hopkins conference about this, I said, doctor, isn't everything that's happening in this auditorium today with people fabricating limbs for uh, children isn't that technically illegal? These are medic medical devices. You know, shouldn't they have gone through a process? Um, and he says, well, yeah, it is, but, you know, um, we're not going to take action now. And it's like, well, when are you going to take action, right? And, of course, what the FDA eventually had to do there, as in other contexts where technological change was moving too fast for them to keep up, they had to modify the law indirectly or informally through a sort of soft law process of guidances and saying, okay, well, here's some best practices, but we're not going to make this outright uh, verboten. But that's not the only example. I, I go through examples of just how all the health services that are in our smartphones today. I mean, technically every fitness tracker needs to go through a regulatory process, but doesn't. Every single sort of health and uh, dietary app on your phone is supposed to go through a process, but it doesn't. These things are happening evasively just because of the pace of change more than anything else. But I have many, many other examples in the book. In the field of transportation, we, we always do get preoccupied with Uber and ride sharing and stuff like that. But what about scooters? You know, scooters are another good example of micromobility uh, innovations. What about drones? There are really interesting things happening with drones at the margins of law sometimes. And I have examples in my book of that sort of thing, like drone wedding photography is a thing now. Everybody who takes a drone out at a wedding to take a photo of the bride and groom is supposed to be licensed by the FAA, but they're not. Fine. They're, they're not going through the process. So I could go on and on and on, Adam, but I mean, um, there are many, many examples like this. And what's interesting, especially from the perspective of people like us who are administrative law nerds, is that the administrative state is responding in some really interesting ways to these challenges and not ways that would be sort of the empire strikes back moment, like we're going to crush it all. That sometimes does happen. 
23andMe is an example of like someone who tried a permissionless innovation of Ace Entrepreneurs in play, and they got hammered. Cease and desist notice slapped on them off the market for 18 months. They're back now but with a very different product, right? But there's a huge swath of other territory and companies that are playing this card, sort of the permissionless innovation of Ace of Entrepreneurism card. And regulators are saying, well, let's not necessarily come down with a sledgehammer. Let's try a different approach. Now, before we get onto some of those approaches, I do want to focus a little bit on innovation itself. And in this book, you make the case for innovation. And it's probably good that you do because people won't always sort of take for granted that innovation is a good thing. You mentioned that a little while ago. And, you know, I'm um, I'm more a conservative than a libertarian. And I suppose as a conservative, uh, the whole point is to be a little skeptical of, of, of innovation. I mean, you can have good innovation and bad innovation. Sure. Uh, innovation isn't inherently good. But is it, I think you're arguing that on the whole is a way of sort of ordering government it's better to err on the side of innovation. Yeah, I, I think so. And we know from the historical record, and there's a widespread consensus among political scientists, economists, and historians that technological innovation is one of the fundamental drivers of improvements in human welfare. Uh, that human betterment, uh, we've achieved the, the gains we have in terms of human betterment across the board in this past century, primarily by allowing innovation to happen. And where it hasn't, the countries and continents that it hasn't, we've seen the results of that. We, we, we just have the hard numbers. There's just like no debating this in terms of um, the various types of uh, life expectancy and, and, and economic growth and GDP and everything else. So pick your metric and innovation is usually correlated with positive uh, metrics in that regard. And so, yeah, I do make a case that generally speaking, innovation is a good, a good thing and it should be defended. But I also agree with what you said, Adam, that, um, and it's not just conservatives saying this, it's people of all ideological dispositions, that not all innovation is good. And a fundamental, tricky legal and moral question is, what do we mean by technological harm? And that is something I spend the last two of the last three chapters of my book grappling with because the most fundamental challenge to my previous book was the argument that you're just some wild-eyed libertarian freak, you know, an anarcho, you know, uh, wild-eyed anarcho-capitalist type who just basically wants to see technology run roughshod over all human values and institutions. And I said, no, that's not the truth. That is not the fact that there can actually be legitimate forms of harm that need to be dealt with. The question is, which ones need to be dealt with preemptively with a precautionary principle approach. And that's where this question of policy defaults get in, put into play. And the, for the most part, the regulatory state, the administrative state is geared towards having a precautionary default by design. And what I argue is most of the time that's not warranted. But it doesn't mean we can't come up with better ways to address the very legitimate concerns people have about disruptive forms of technological change. Now, in the book, you're making a case for evasive entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, but you're also sort of observing that as a matter of fact, evasive entrepreneurialism is on the rise, right? You're docu documenting a, a real trend in our society. And so much of it is probably located um, in, in high-tech industries. I mean, Uber is about cars, but it's really about networking of cars and, and networking of drivers and customers and so on. Um, as, as you know, Peter Thiel, Mark Andreessen and others have observed, it's just easier to innovate when you're dealing with ones and zeros rather than if you're trying to innovate in sort of the built environment 
um, because there just isn't a regulatory apparatus that slows as much of that down, right? So that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so much of what you're describing, because the innovation is mostly coming on the side of the I mean, the software side of things, not exclusively. I mean, you, you already gave us an example, right, with 3D printing, which is obviously not just ones and zeros. But we're seeing innovation on the, on the, on the sort of the tech and networking side that's then applied to change the ways that we're really organizing ourselves in, in the real world. Uh, and so where I'm going with this is one of the reasons why evasive entrepreneurialism is on the rise is because, as you said, there's a pace of change issue. Right, that the technological change is moving much, much more quickly than the regulators can kind of keep up, right, or 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 readjust their their legacy regulatory programs to really map explicitly onto these new technologies. So, why don't you talk about the pace of change? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, generally speaking, um, uh, those folks who are in the field of uh, uh, science and technology studies use this term, the pacing problem to refer to the idea that the pace of technological change is often or increasingly outstripping the pace of policy change. And there's no doubt that with the rise of a whole class of new digital and decentralized types of information technologies, we are seeing the consequences of that for better or for worse. Right. I make this point in my book. I'm trying to identify, as you just pointed out, the sort of empirical on the ground realities of what happens when the pacing problem takes over. Um, and they're not always pretty. Sometimes they can be ugly and they do raise questions about how we should deal with them. But they're happening. And we should ask ourselves how technological governance will work when the pacing problem becomes a relentless kind of driver uh, of change uh, in our society and economy. Now, of course, there are distinctions, as you just noted, uh, Adam, about the types of technologies or sectors we're talking about. I spent some time in my book talking about the difference between technologies or sectors that I say are born free quote unquote, versus born into regulatory captivity. <laughs> and it's easy to identify born free ones. And basically they're ones like the internet and 3D printing and virtual reality that are born into an environment where they are not confronted with the permission society and all the permission slips uh, accompanying it uh, by a bunch of uh, you know regulatory agencies uh, like the FAA or the FDA or the FCC. There are, by contrast, plenty of technologies um, and innovators who have to confront those sorts of agencies because they're essentially born into regulatory captivity when their technology comes out and they say, I know what that driverless car is, says the regulator. It's just another car. We can just pigeonhole it into yesterday's uh, transportation and automobile regulations. Or the FAA regulator, similarly, looks at a drone and says, hey, it's just a flying thing. We should regulate it under administrative law, You know, the, the section of the code that deals with planes and aviation and model aircraft. And so that's the, the problem that we're confronted with today. But here's the interesting thing. These worlds are colliding because of technological convergence. And so when the ramifications of the digital revolution and the information revolution start to creep into those other sectors, then you have a real fundamental governance challenge on your hands. If your answer is just throw the book at them and the, and the book is yesterday's old crusty book that doesn't necessarily make sense for the new technologies in town. And that's what my book and my work is, is focused on confronting. How do you deal with that governance challenge? Uh, some of the, the folks out West who I keep an eye on uh, have been the ones who have said that, well, here's a good example. Keith Raboy of uh, now Founders Fund, previously of, uh, I think, Coastal Ventures. He was, a, was sort of a lawyer, a recovering lawyer like me. And um, uh, when he went into into venture capital, 
uh, he said one of his advantages was having enough comfort with the legal world and the regulatory world to realize how much of it isn't fixed in place and, and where you could push either for to, to get around regulations by showing that they don't apply or he understanding where areas were just ripe for change. I mean, it was sort of interesting when Andreessen Horowitz brought in Ted Ulyat, you know, an experienced White House hand. Um, now, I suppose, actually, our part-time colleague at George Mason um, at the law school. Um, and so there is there is some of that. Um, and, and, and part of the success of, of evasive entrepreneurialism has been to pick and choose its battles correctly, right? To understand where there is, what actually can be evaded, maybe is a good way of putting it. I want to change gears a little bit and, and talk about um, soft law. Sure. Because that, that sort of looms in the background of all of this. You, you wrote a really interesting paper, came out just a couple of years ago in the Colorado Technology Law Journal. It was uh, you and uh, Jennifer Huddleston and Ryan Hageman. And the, the paper was called Soft Law for Hard Problems, the Governance of Emerging Technologies in an Uncertain Future. And I just want to note for our audience, I really encourage you to look this up, Adam, not just this paper, but Adam and his colleagues' broader work. Um, Adam's been involved in a big project out at, I think, Arizona State University, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, I think this is going to be a, a crucially important issue in for anybody who studies administration in the years to come, and the Gray Center will be focusing on it, too. So, Adam, why don't you just tell us, what is this um, uh, soft law? Sure. Yeah, so basically soft law is most easily defined by what it isn't, which it's not hard law. And we generally know what we're talking about when you talk about hard law. But from the perspective of those of us who focus on administrative regulation, uh, we know hard law follows a certain formula and it has to be compliant with the Administrative Procedures Act. And, you know, you have to have cost benefit analysis and a variety of other formal procedures have to be satisfied. Soft law breaks with that and basically says, no, we need a, a more adaptive uh, toolkit or playbook for addressing different types of technological change. And it can be a very diverse playbook. And a messy one. Uh, this is the biggest problem with soft laws. It's very imprecise. And it, you look at it, it can be anything from traditional guidance documents to something as informal as consultations with regulators or speeches by regulators. It could be something like a, a workshop or a workshop report. Um, you take a look at, for example, how the Department of Transportation, under both the Obama and Trump administrations, has addressed driverless car technology. It's done it in the form of just basically the equivalent of a glossy PowerPoint document. <laughs> we, we have rules of the road that aren't rules at all. They're basically just informal suggestions to say, like, here's some things you should consider if you're developing these technologies. Now, of course, there still remains a whole huge body of laws and regulations governing automobiles, quote unquote, but driverless cars are more like computers on wheels and they're a little different. And so there's a lot of uncertainty associated with how not only the Department of Transportation, but state regulators will address something like driverless cars. And Softlot aims to fill some of these gaps. If for no other reason, then the regulators still want to have a say. In my experience of 30 years of dealing with regulatory agencies, they don't always necessarily want to come down hard on all forms of innovation or shut the door on all forms of competition. To the contrary, they're actually, at least in the United States, far more open to these forms of competition. It would probably make their lives a little easier in some contexts, but they absolutely want to have a say. They definitely want to be involved in the process. And I think the core soft law mechanism for most of the sectors that I cover is now becoming multi-stakeholder processes. What's that? 
Yeah, multi-stakeholder processes is just basically the idea of the government bringing together the relevant players and assembling them in a process, you know, giving them proverbial seats at a table as stakeholders, whatever that means, and it's tough to define in some context, mm -hmm. to have a discussion. And it's very much an old model that when I first cut my teeth in this field 30 years ago, I used to hear the phrase, government steers and industry rose. And this was before we had the term multi-stakeholderism. But that's basically what multi-stakeholderism uh, is. But it's a slight form of steering in the form of like an agency, like the NTIA in the Department of Commerce or even the FAA in DOT, it would basically say, we're going to bring people together who want to make policy around drones and maybe more specifically drone privacy. But we don't have a federal privacy law. We do not have a privacy bill of rights as the Obama administration wanted. And we don't have much formal regulation. But can we come up with best practices governing the use of drones in society such that it would safeguard some of our privacy. And that's, that's, that's what's been done. And it's been done in the context of driverless cars. I've been involved in multiple multi-stakeholder processes involving driverless car privacy or driverless car security and safety, cybersecurity of driverless cars. This has been done across the internet for domain names to online child safety to other forms of uh, digital privacy and advertising issues. I could go on and on and on. The, the, again, the last two chapters of my book try to document this, the law review article you mentioned. And then I have a new history that I wrote for the Arizona State University project on these issues for artificial intelligence in particular, I have a history of how soft law has been utilized in information and communications technology sectors. The really funny thing about it is I don't win any love from anybody on any side of the political spectrum when I talk about or write about soft law. I get heat from the left. I get heat from the right. I get heat from everybody. But I hope that everybody understands that for better or for worse, soft law, at least for most of these new technology sectors, is the governance future. Well, I can see why you take heat from both sides, frankly. Um, I, I could see some on the left saying that soft law is an abdication of, of the actual work of government in, in imposing hard laws. Uh, some folks on the left and maybe the right also would say that it, it implies sort of a cozy, a cozier relationship between government and the government that we want. Yep. Uh, in the other direction, um, with a totally from looking through totally the opposite end of the telescope, you could have some on the right saying that the problem with soft law is that it denies the it's just too amorphous right yep. that that and this is the arguments we see about guidance documents that agencies come to rely on this sort of very vague mother may i regulatory environment um that really never codifies into real regulations that would bind the government as much as the governed yep um and you you have trouble with judicial review i think of oftentimes the metaphor i use because i grew up uh, in a family of, of mostly boys and i was the oldest it's like um when you have you grab your little brother by the hand and you slap him in the face with his own hand and you say stop slapping yourself <laughs> um to the extent that the government relies on on soft law in the absence of hard law well, if there comes time for any kind of judicial review, the, the government can say, listen, we haven't imposed any regulations. We've just helped the industry find some best practices, and they're really just imposing it upon themselves. And so th that's what I see as, as maybe the downsides of soft law. No, and it's absolutely a, an, a, an excellent critique. It's one that, ironically, I agree much with. I, it's basically what I've been writing about for much of my right. career. Right. I mean, what, what we're talking about is accountability, and specifically constitutional accountability, and making sure that our government operates 
operates according to sound and known procedures, yeah. right? We don't want government to be in the dark. We don't want it to be done off the books. We want it to be done with some formality. But here's the problem. Technological change doesn't follow that nice, neat little plan. Right. And if you continue to want to have government adapt and respond to concerns that are being raised by new forms of technological change, you have to ask yourself, whether you're from the political left or political right, how that's going to work. And so while I agree with the critiques of both the left or the right about soft law, I also say, well, what is your alternative? Because the, the, what the left wants and what the right want independently is probably just not as feasible as they would like. And so it is very much a second best, maybe more like a third best kind of scenario about what we do to, to fill that governance vacuum when traditional hard, hard law mechanisms uh, fail us. Now, in your book, you, you point a way forward with what you call Responsible Research and Innovation, RRI. Um, why don't you describe what that is? Well, that, that's a movement that's very much emanating out of Europe to basically come up with a more formal way of addressing technological governance. And they very clearly, at least in Europe, want it to be more precautionary in character and imposed through a hard law type of mechanism. Right. And you really stress that, 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 that the way this would work, you'd have, to, you'd have to take away the precautionary principle element of it. You, you would have to basically at some point decide what your default's going to be for innovative activities. And there's no doubt that the Europeans are going to be far more open to the idea of it being the precautionary principle, and that that is going to have some real serious ramifications for the innovative potential of European companies, as is witnessed by the fact that this was the model for the internet that the Europeans put in place 20 years ago. And today, you can't name any major internet companies emanating out of the European continent. It just doesn't happen. you know. And so I make that point in my earlier book on permissionless innovation and say that can't be our answer, that we, we do need to have a dialogue about what we mean by responsible innovation, but we can't have it if it means the precautionary principle, because you've already answered your question. The dialogue begins and ends with the idea, thou shall not, mother may I. That's the default, right? And then the discussion becomes one of how you break out of that of those change if you're an innovator or entrepreneur. And the answer is you either don't or you engage in innovation arbitrage and you go somewhere that's going to allow your activities to take place. You know, I'm, I'm curious, not too long ago, a couple of your colleagues wrote a really great paper for the Gray Center. Uh, Brian Knight and Trace Mitchell wrote a, a paper on regulatory sandboxes. It's called The Sandbox Paradox. It's, it's available on our website. Um, how do regulatory sandboxes fit into this? And if you wouldn't mind describing what, what a regulatory sandbox is. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Brian Knight and Trace Mitchell have worked on that and many others have as well. And mm -hmm. the sandboxing idea, it really started uh, mostly in the UK. Uh, UK financial regulators were, wanted to make sure that they can continue to have be a driving force in the world of uh, finance. But they understood that a lot of the companies that they wanted to remain housed there were going to flee if they did take a more flexible, adaptive approach to financial regulation. And so sandboxing became a way to basically allow for regulators and affected parties to come together somehow to have a discussion about new innovations uh, before they happen, but in a sort of uh, a sort of safe harborish kind of way, sort of getting in a safe place where they could talk about things and maybe hammer out some guidelines or guideposts to make sure that the regulators' concerns were addressed. But at the same time, the innovation took, uh, took place. And this model has been utilized in other contexts, but uh, in the United States, we've had informal types of sandboxing going on for many, many years at the FCC and uh, at the local level. We've had it more recently with driverless cars. Now, let me be clear. Sandboxing is, again, 
ripe for abuse. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a really fundamental question about sandboxing is, you know, what's being discussed in a private meeting and how private is that meeting? And yeah. if you're discussing like core attributes of your own intellectual property and your, your business plans and somebody leaks anything about that or later goes on to lobby for an opposing, you know, company, <laughs> there's some real issues there right again we have uh government uh we have policies and regulations that are, are intended to shine sunlight on the process of regulatory uh, procedures for a good reason but if you never give any place for that sort of conversation to happen and you expect it to all go quote unquote by the book then a lot of those companies are just going to go ahead and behave evasively or flee and this is why you have to answer the question how much do you want your government to truly be adaptive and flexible in responding to technological change? Yeah, and on that point, you know, earlier you referred to the the, the term uh, innovation arbitrage and mm -hmm. the ability of people to go from one jurisdiction to another. I suppose one of our advantages in the United States is that with fifty states and with local communities with varying amounts of autonomy, um, you don't need to to be a successful evasive entrepreneur. You don't need to do it every time at the national level from the start. You can find a hospitable jurisdiction that's looking to experiment a bit, and you can start there and then build the political constituency nationwide. I suppose that's something that Uber tried a bit, right, in picking and choosing where they would deploy first. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, and, and certain states have been real leaders in this regard. You look at Governor Ducey in Arizona, someone who has actively encouraged companies and innovators to relocate to Arizona. You look at yeah. uh, other states uh, like Texas and Florida and, and Ohio and others. They've, they've had people who've tried to attract folks. Now, of course, there's the danger that this becomes sort of the traditional race to the bottom and beggar thy neighbor kind of strategies that uh, can really hurt commerce. But the reality is, yeah. is that in today's more innovative world, this is actually a winning strategy both for a lot of companies and a lot of policymakers. And it happens even more at the international level. I mean, America has been the beneficiary of most of this activity with a lot of uh, innovators and investors, importantly. The VC market flocked here because of the, the digital revolution. It's really, really hard to get VC money if you're a European innovator. Um, but that doesn't always hold true. I mean, you look what's happened with drones. Most American drone innovators went overseas to do most of their testbed innovation. They had to go to Canada, Australia, the UK, because the FAA had such onerous, restrictive policies governing where you could fly any kind of drone in this country. So we could be on the losing end in the United States uh, if we don't have more flexible policies for some of these things. Genetics would be another area where I think because of FDA regulation, we have a lot to worry about with China. Well, we'll finish up with, with your the blueprint you have at the end of the book. But before we do, just one last general question. I mean, I agree with you. The pacing problem here, the pacing issue is so key, right? The fact that technolo technology changes so quickly and government is not going to be able to keep up. If, I mean, the experts are not in government, right? The, most of the experts are in the industry at the cutting edge. Right. But, when I, but when I sit back and look at the system as a whole, what worries me is that the, this dynamic would seem to reinforce the predominance of real sort of executive governance, right? The one part of government's going to be slow and, and slow to adapt. The one part of government that is going to adapt relatively quickly relative to the others is the executive branch. Mm -hmm. And what worries me a bit is to the extent that if, if Congress um, sort of reads your book, if they react the wrong way and say, well, this is what we need to, we need to, stop these evaders, the, the, these, you know, these law evaders, 
the solution, the most natural solution might be to delegate even broader power to the executive branch to help equip them to be more nimble, right? It seems to me that if they try to correct it on that side, the natural solution is just broader delegations of power um, to allow um, uh, the executive branch to be faster. How, how do we how do we solve that problem? Well, uh, oh boy, let me tell you, Adam, you know, this is a problem that we both have struggled with our whole lives. Right. And, you know, delegation is right. at the root of almost everything that's wrong with the administrative state today. Uh, Congress has abdicated its responsibilities. It has basically decided to pass the buck on all the hard questions. I mean, I have made just rounds of bets with friends about things like, will we have a national privacy bill of rights? Will we have a national driverless car framework? Will we have a national genetic blah, blah, blah. And I, every time take the negative, I take the no bet. I'm like, no, 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 no. And every year I collect because Congress just (laughs) can't act fast enough. And I don't know how to solve that problem. One, uh, you know, one group of people say like, it comes down to congressional expertise on technology and that they need to get, you know, more expertise. That might be part of it. It might be a staffing issue. It might be not just staffing numbers. It might be the right staffers, right? The, the staffers with the right expertise and then paying them the right amount of money to stick, stick around for a while. That too could be part of it. Um, but at the end of the day, even with those sorts of things to help, that doesn't solve the pacing problem. It doesn't solve the problem that as soon as one technological issue becomes ripe for congressional consideration, it's immediately crowded out by another. The difference between today and like 30 years ago is that you didn't have that sort of pace of sort of crests of like massive technological change on one wave after another within a couple of years. You had several years to consider something. I worked on the Telecommunications Act of 1996. It got started in 1988 in earnest with something that uh, Majority Leader Bob Dole introduced. And then I worked on early iterations in 1992, uh, 1993 and four. And then finally, in 1996, we acted on it. Okay, that took eight years. Uh, is there any chance something like that's really going to work for the internet today? I just don't don't see it happening. So there's always going to be a lot of wishful thinking about the way things could be or should be in Congress. But what I try to do in my book is to say, look, folks, I'm with you, but I've got to have a backup plan. What's the backup plan? Well, we're not going to solve the delegation issue on this podcast. So let's, <laughs> let, let's finish with, 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 with some narrower uh, topics. Let's talk about your blueprint. What is the blueprint forward for this? Well, I think there's a number of different things that, that lawmakers can do. And I think that, that one thing they need to understand is they, they need to take things off the table that are no longer necessary. One of the biggest problems of a regulatory accumulation that's not appreciated, and we all appreciate how it hurts the economy and innovators and all that stuff, but we don't appreciate how regulatory accumulation hurts good governance. And that until you clean house and like get your own rules in order, you can't really have sound governance efforts at any any level. And so a big part of what I've tried to do along with my colleagues at the Mercatus Center, um, and I know we've had discussions about this before, Adam, which is that the idea of like having some sort of sunsetting imperative, like we need to basically be building sunsets into policy, specifically into tech policy, so that if you're going to put new rules on, you sunset them on a fairly strict timetable to refresh them every couple of years. Mm-hmm. And you need to then do that retrospectively in clean house. And another thing that we've suggested is the idea of some sort of a BRAC commission model for a spring cleaning of the regulatory state, like inventorying rules that didn't make sense or that held back progress, and then addressing them, hopefully by either repealing them or, or comprehensively reforming them. And then that frees up government assets and resources to focus on more important and pressing matters going forward. Uh, 
Um, I think that's something that absolutely can be done at the federal, state, and local level. I'm starting to see some really good traction on that front. And I'd like to think that that could improve the quality of uh, not only the legislative branches, but uh, efforts, but also the administrative state. They would have fewer things to, to worry about if they're still trying to enforce decades-old regulations. Well, before we go, do you want to preview for our audience uh, the things that you're working on next? Well, obviously, that issue, uh, the the so-called BRAC Commission idea, what we call the Fresh Start Initiative, is my primary short-term focus because in the wake of the COVID crisis, a lot of governments have been shedding rules. A lot of agencies have been pausing regulations. We're trying to figure out a way to comprehensively bring rules and regulations together, have them studied by expert commissions and, and groups, and then try to come up with a policy of bringing them into one package that we could sort of vote up and down on to finally get that spring cleaning done. Uh, another thing that I'm really trying to work actively on in a more targeted applied way is the growing challenge of regulating artificial intelligence and robotics uh, in a global marketplace. And there's a really interesting uh, uh, fight going on between the Chinese, the Europeans, and the U.S. about broad-based governance visions for artificial intelligence. It is really, I think, the fundamental technological battle of our times. And my next big, big paper is going to be focused on the question of how do we how do we govern or, govern or regulate that at a global level? And then what do the various industrial policies look like in China, the European Union, and even the U.S. in terms of what governments are doing to support those technologies and sectors. So that's my next big uh, targeted-based uh, effort. Well, it sounds interesting. Then again, things always seem interesting over the Mercatus Center. There's so much interesting uh, work coming out from you and, and your colleagues. I'd encourage our audience to look it up. But they should start with your latest book, Evasive Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance. Our guest has been Adam Thierer. Adam, thanks again. Thanks again for having me, Adam. And I hope everyone will join us for the next episode of Arbitrary and Capricious. 